Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to episode 263 of the Family Medicine Rocks podcast for Tuesday, June 12, 2012. On today's show, Dr. Laura Knoble, family physician and board member of the American Academy of Family Physicians, will be joining me live to discuss her recent essay, The Joys and Advantages of Solo Practice. This is from the AAFP Leader Voices blog. And uh, we also may uh, talk a little bit about uh, uh, social media as well. You know, this is social media, so we may talk about that uh, a little bit as well. So all that and a lot more coming up on episode 263 of the Family Medicine Rocks podcast. As always, opening the show, <laughs> my good friend, the president of the American Academy of Family Physicians. This is Dr. Glenn Stream. Um, this year, one of my commitments and, and a great interest is to be more engaged with you as leaders, chapter leaders, uh, and, and our frontline membership. Uh, on, on Monday, a Twitter handle, I'm privileged to be the first one to hold, uh, at AFP Prez, P-R-E-Z. I already have 29 followers. I feel so proud. Um, I have a long, long way to go to catch up to uh, our current student board member, Kevin Bernstein, who has a little over 1,000, um, and our, uh, our king of family medicine social media, uh, Mike Sevilla, who has uh, nearly 7,000 uh, members. Medicine Rocks Podcast. I'm your host. My name is Mike Savilla, the anchorman of Family Medicine. What? I have no idea what that means. Uh, this show is by a family physician for the growing family medicine community, of which you are now a part of by just listening to this show. That's right. I encourage you to check out my digital library of stuff at FamilyMedicineRocks.com. And I want to give a big shout out to all the people following me on Twitter. All uh, 9,521 people follow me on Twitter. That's at Dr. Mike Savilla, D-R, Mike Savilla. And also, shout-out to all 411 people who like the Facebook page for the website there. Today is Tuesday, June 12, 2012. It is 6 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. And uh, here at Family Medicine Rocks World Headquarters, it is still 84 degrees Fahrenheit. And uh, how has your week been going there, uh, kids? Uh, it's been uh, beautiful here in uh, northeastern Ohio. And, uh, you know, hey, that uh, that longest day of the year is coming up. I think it'll be coming up uh, next week. So nice to have all that daylight um, out there. So hope things are going well. I know in certain parts of the country, as I speak, they're getting drenched 
with rain there, so hopefully it's not too uh, not too too bad. Uh, so uh, my guest uh, coming up um, is uh, Dr. Laura Knoble. Uh, and before we start, and uh, uh, and she's on hold, so she's listening to all of this. Uh, I do want to apologize for mispronouncing her name for the last two weeks on this show, and, and I'll let you all into a little uh, secret. <laughs> um, this will be my first kind of in-depth chat with her. I've met her maybe a, a once or twice at an academy meeting, but this will be the first time uh, kind of sitting down and uh, chatting with her live on Internet radio. So all of you out there in Internet radio land, uh, we'll see my interview skills or a lack of them during the course of the show here this evening. But that's what I love about social media, just uh, meeting a lot of uh, new people and having people tell the story. That's what I think a lot of social media is all about. And I do want to thank everybody out there for your support for the previous shows uh, with uh, Dr. Conrad Flick and Dr. Reed Blackwelder. Um, and uh, those two shows, and I, I know this one will be as well, it will be on the first page. Um, of the uh, popularity uh, contest for the uh, category and the health category here um, on the uh, Blog Talk Radio Network. So thank you so much for uh, all of your uh, listeners to the show, downloads, um, and uh, archive listeners to the show. I very much appreciate that. It's really showing the family medicine community the value of uh, social media. Uh, so I, I do want to uh, preview the next show here. So that'll be episode 264. That'll be Thursday, June 14th. I haven't decided what time that's going to be at, but you can listen on the DL. You can listen on the download. I'm going to be discussing two articles that have popped up on my Twitter stream in the past uh, week or so. One was a Huffington Post article. Uh, the title is Time for Total Medicine, Get Family Medicine Out of the Shadows. And if you're on Twitter or Facebook, you've probably seen this already. I'll be sharing some of my thoughts on that article uh, coming up on the next show. And also uh, a, a, an article that uh, I uh, recently uh, was made aware of, uh, uh, it's from uh, hitconsultant.net, and the title is, Are We on the Verge of a Primary Care Renaissance? So I'll be discussing those two articles and also uh, kind of summarizing these past few shows from my perspective. That'll be coming up on episode 264. That'll be on Thursday, June 14, the live time to be determined, but you can always listen on the download. Uh, so my guest uh, coming up here uh, will be uh, Laura Knoble, M.D., and uh, she's been, pract- been a practicing family physician for more than 19 years, and you can get her uh, bio on uh, aafp.org. Uh, she's been a practicing family physician for more than 19 years. Since 2005, she has owned and operated a solo family medicine practice in Walpole, Massachusetts, where she was raised. Uh, was previously employed uh, by the Foxborough Center for Women's and Family Health um, and Foxborough Area Health Center in Foxborough, Massachusetts. Um, she also owned and operated Walpole Family Practice from 1992 through 2001. And as a board member for the American Academy of Family Physicians, she advocates on behalf of family physicians and patients nationwide to inspire positive change in the U.S. healthcare system. Throughout her career, she has generously donated her time and expertise to the local community. She currently serves as the physician advisor for the Massachusetts Audubon Society at Moose Health and has been the physician advisor for the Walpole Community Roundtable and uh, is a member of the uh, Walpole Medical Reserve Corps, also coached youth softball for many years. She earned her undergraduate degree at Bates College in Lewiston, Maine, and uh, her medical degree from the Boston University School of Medicine, then completed her residency at the Brown University, uh, at Brown University in Pawtucket, Rhode Island. 
Um, so uh, looking forward to this uh, conversation uh, coming up here. I've had a lot of people already contact me uh, through the Internet. Uh, looking forward to our conversation uh, coming up. But first, I do want to thank Blog Talk Radio for having me be a featured host on this network. Uh, thank you uh, so much for that. And if you're wondering, yes, I am a real doctor. I am a, a family physician in full-time private practice, meaning I see patients five days a week in the office and in the hospital here in beautiful northeastern Ohio. Uh, so I will take my break, and uh, after the break here will be uh, Dr. Laura Knoble. You're listening to the Family Medicine Rocks podcast, the unofficial podcast of the Family Medicine Revolution. Just a Google FM Revolution for more details. And also uh, a member of the ProMed Network of Podcasts. You can get there by going to ProMedNetwork.com. And we'll be right back. Right, the show that is the unstoppable force of family medicine. Uh, this is the Family Medicine Rocks podcast. My name is Mike Savilla. And uh, on the line with us, uh, we have uh, right now a new friend uh, who I'm looking forward to uh, chatting with. Uh, this is uh, Dr. Laura Knoble. Thank you uh, for the time. Thanks, Mike, for having me tonight. Um, I really appreciate it. And after all you just said, I'm not sure I have anything left to say. <laughs> Only kidding. <laughs> Uh, now, before we get started, I, I, I know we're, I know we'll probably have some time at the end uh, to talk about social media, but you have just been doing a great job. You were in uh, Rhode Island last week and posting some pictures and doing some some kind of reporting there, and uh, uh, you're going to be going to uh, New Jersey this week. And uh, I just want to say that you've just been doing a great job, just kind of uh, you know taking everything in and, and using Facebook, and it looks like you're having a lot of fun with it. Uh, thanks for that. It's I'm a new convert to Facebook and Twitter, and I'm doing my best. We did have Kevin Bernstein on the board, so he pushed a lot of us. And I think right now this year on the board, everybody is on Facebook and everybody's on Twitter. So I'm learning how to get my pictures posted. I'm learning how to get all those nice events up there, and I'm having fun doing it. So that's great. That's great. Um, so I'm looking forward to talking about your essay because uh, I've got a lot of feedback from it. I don't know if you've gotten a lot of feedback from it, but uh, um, let's kind of start at the, the beginning here. And, um, you know, social media and family medicine is a lot about uh, storytelling. Mm-hmm. Uh, so why don't we talk a little bit about your story um, as far as, you know, what first drew you toward medical school in the first place, what drew you towards uh, family medicine? Why don't we start there? All right. Um, I've... I have the advantage of having listened to Reed and Conrad before you, so I can practice a little bit. Um, (laughs) And unlike the two of them, I actually can't really tell you when I decided I wanted to go into medicine, but it was fairly early. Uh, Initially, I wanted to be a pediatrician, and then when I was in ninth grade, and I remember ninth grade because there was a a TV show on called Quincy, who was the local pathologist who solved all these crimes. Yep. That's when I decided... 
I wanted to be a pathologist because I could operate on people and I didn't have to worry about whether they survived or not. <laughs> so, um, but actually, there was a there was a, a physician in my um, growing up stage, um, Dr. Jansen, who was a good old fashioned general practitioner, who really made an impact on me. Um, at one point, my younger brother was having some issues with his stomach, and he had gone in to see Dr. Jansen, who very astutely picked up the fact that my grandmother had just had a leg amputated. My uncle, her son, was in the hospital with some sort of blood disorder, and my brother was sort of looking at this thinking, well, what is my future going to be like? Wow. And it was really, It was really impressive. Um, This particular general practitioner then um, lost his wife and went into anesthesiology, and so we had to change doctors for a while. But when my grandfather died about seven or eight years later, what amazed me was he actually showed up at the wake to be there with the family. And that really sort of said it all. It was like, all right, I want to do this. This is the kind of medicine that I want to do. And so that that's when I really started thinking about family medicine. Um, when I was in high school, I was part of a medical explorer group. Um, in college, I was pre-med all the way. I did take a couple of years off. I was debating whether to go um, into a um, MD-PhD program and do some research. So I did some research at Mass General and New England Medical Center on a variety of different things between college and medical school. Um, but then ended up at BU. So, hmm. and how, how was that experience for you? Because that's you know that's a that's a big school with a lot of people, and it's you know it's it's kind of uh, um, I don't want to say uh, stereotypical, but it's uh, you know as as what you see on TV as far as you know what the big schools are and about. And uh, how was that experience for you? Well, it was interesting. It, it was well before BU had a Department of Family Medicine, so. We were in the medical mecca and dealing with the issues that we had. Um, I got involved, I I think, again, knowing that I wanted to do family medicine was really helpful because I could steer the direction that I went. And so I got involved in the primary care society while I was there. And Dr. Jean Arnold, who is a family doc from New Hampshire, she and her husband both had graduated from BU, um, set up a fund and when I was a second year, I was able to go out to Kansas City for the National Conference of Students and Residents, oh. and I got hooked, hook, line, and sinker. Um, when I did my family medicine rotation, I was actually in a town called Malden with Dr. Sidney Zeitler, who was the then um, chair of the Mass Academy of Family Physicians, and he encouraged me to apply for, and I became the student rep to the Board of Governors, at that time, and I was also on the um, Committee on Women. So I had that family medicine connection outside of the school because inside of the school, our primary care society was run by a wonderful man, John McCann, who was a gastroenterologist but really a family doc at heart. And we had the standard, you know, my my fourth year, we were in our medicine sub-internship, and they were going around asking everybody what they were going to do. And, you know, the person in front of me was going into medicine, and the 
preceptor was like, that's great, where are you going, all this conversation. The next person was going into general surgery, that's great, all this conversation. Laura, what are you going to do? Well, I'm going into family medicine. Oh, that's nice, next person. Wow. So, um, so, so, so you got that taste early on as far as, oh, you know, um, this is this specialty that we love is, is treated a little bit differently uh, by different people. It is, and I'm happy to say right now with BU's Department of Family Medicine, that's really made a difference over there. So I think, you know, maybe we had a little bit of a part in that as we went through. I also I also should tell you that I had my first child when I was a fourth-year medical student, so wow. that was a little bit of a, a challenge, but, but a fun one. Um, yeah, I, I talk to a lot of people about that. Um, mm-hmm. you know, can you give me a little bit of insight, you know, on that as far as, you know, balancing the time and, and being a student? And mm-hmm. um, that's got to be very challenging back at that time. Well, timing timing is everything. I finished my rotations on February 20th and delivered on March 7th. So I actually had the last couple of months off between uh, medical school wow. and residency. So did that you was, plan that, was, that out? I uh, did. Yeah. I am a planner. Yeah. I see. I see. Okay. Could I could I do it again? Probably not, but we'll come to that in a little bit. So, but no, it it worked out really well. So I had all that time um between uh medical school and residency to really spend some time. And then we moved back home to Walpole and lived with my parents for a while who actually um babysat for me. So that was um that was the way we started residency. Wow. And um, so that that worked out pretty well. What were your uh, memories of of national conference when you when you look back now, as far as you know the things that you experienced, or or was it were you, were you looking you know for certain experiences there, or you know uh, what, what what are your memories from that national conference? Uh, the first one is that it was only the second time I was on an airplane, so oh. <laughs> that was quite that was quite a quite a feat. Um, when we got there, there was the old life article about the pioneers in family medicine from the Augusta, Maine program, and I actually got to meet them, and that was a wonderful time. I did I did a fourth year elective up in Augusta with them, as a result of having met them in Kansas City. The the most important thing though was that you were in an environment that was very nurturing and friendly, which is not what we had in Boston at the time. And it was just so nice to be with all of these people for whom family medicine was it. I mean, the excitement, the passion, um, it was just wonderful. And, you know, that that got me through the last part of my years. The person I went out with ultimately ended up going into psychiatry, so it was a 50-50 deal there. I got into family medicine. She went into psychiatry, so... Mm -hmm. But, yeah, uh, I, I had a lot of uh, friends that I went out there, uh, close friends, you know, and, mm-hmm. and uh, we were on similar tracks, and then they ended up going to a different path, uh, which is fine because you know they found their passion in medical school, and uh, and and that was fine. But uh, but yeah, I think I think we all have stories like that as far mm-hmm. as. Uh, um, you know, going going back to those uh, national conference days. Um, now, now, when you talk to you know anybody now, you know whether it's medical students or your community or anybody else, so what, what, what do you tell them about family medicine? What, what, why do you love the specialty? Why why you know you want to share this with other people, especially you know students, medical students, undergrads? Mm-hmm. For me, it's all about taking care of the patients and becoming almost part of their family. Again, as we talk about stories, hearing their stories, 
being part of their stories. Um, it, it just it's a wonderful it's a wonderful relationship. And I I've been lucky. I've been in the same location uh, with for the last twenty years, and so my patients have moved with me. And so I've taking I'm now taking care of grandchildren of patients that I had. I had some of my babies who've now delivered. Um, and it, it's just wonderful. And you get to know these people. They become a part of your life. And they're, they're family. They're friends. Wow. And, and you're originally from that part of the country. Right I there, grew up in right? Walpole. This is home. Wow. Went wow. to high school here. My husband went to high school here. We didn't date during high school, though. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. Uh, my kids went to school here. So this is mm-hmm. home. And it was important for you to return to where you grew up and, and to kind of give back to the community? It was. Uh, family was here. Both my, my parents and my in-laws were here. Um, and, again, it, it's it's a community that's given us a lot, and we're able to give back to it. Uh, my favorite part was actually coaching softball for the girls because that was just such a blast. My um, I, I coached my oldest tournament team, and – to work with young women um, in there, you know, we went from 14 to 17 um, over those years. And to be a good role model, to show them that you can achieve, which is really, I think, important for young women. You can do what you set your mind to and have fun doing it and still have a life. So it's an important story for medical students, too, to see that and to hear that, that you know, you're not stuck in the office all day long. You can do other things. Oh yeah, and, and you probably have had, you know, you know, um, some of those young women come back, you know, years later and and tell you stories about you know, how you influenced them or or good memories about uh, about the team or about games, and, and that's got to be very gratifying for you. Oh, it, it's fun. It's fun. One of my daughter's um, best friends is actually finishing up her PA studies in Connecticut, and. We had hired a nurse practitioner a little while ago, and she was like, darn, it would have been fun to come home. But um, it, it's it's one of those experiences that you'll never get back. My <laughs> um, guest on the line here is uh, Dr. Laura Knoble from uh, Massachusetts, and uh, tell, already starting off with a great uh, first part of the story here. Um, and uh, she's a family physician and uh, also a member of the American Academy of Family Physicians Board of Directors. And uh, um, why don't we just uh, take things in a little bit different direction? Why don't we kind of pick up as far as getting close to um, the end of residency, Laura, mm-hmm. and uh, maybe pick up there as far as was solo practice something that you always wanted to do or was your first job something different than solo practice? Why don't you kind of pick up the story there? Mm-hmm. My, my first job was different. Um, I really didn't know what I wanted to do when I finished my residency. And much like much like medical school, I um, had my last month as a reading elective, so I decided to have my second child on May 21st. So we had fourth-year medical school, third-year residency. <laughs> okay. Okay. So there you go. again, I'm fo- planning, I'm you. <laughs> timing is perfect. Um, <laughs> when, I, when I finished, I actually ended up in a hospital-run health center that was the next town over from Walpole. We, we don't go too very far. And it was, it was quite interesting because at the time, we had to fight to get pediatric privileges in our hospital. Really? Wow. Um, so it was Part of it was that the chair of the Department of Pediatrics was a local doc in our town, uh, but it was it was interesting. So right from the bat, there was no chance of doing maternity care. 
Mm. So that was that was a little frustrating, but we didn't we didn't end up getting our pediatric privileges. And so I worked in this clinic for a couple of years, and I, I got frustrated. I will say, we had our own patient panels, and we would have full schedules, and we wouldn't be able to see our own patients. But if somebody walked in off the street, we would see them, and that just okay. didn't seem right. And so. I was sitting in my dentist's office one day, and the house next door was for sale. And he said, you know, that would make a good doctor's office. That got me thinking, and the next thing you know, I had started a solo practice in Walpole. Wow. Um, wow. Did that for a couple of years, brought on a PA, uh, because I couldn't find a family doc, actually. It was it was really hard to recruit family docs into the area. Then we brought on another family doc, we outgrew our space, had to build a new building, which we did, and um, decided we were going to grow that practice. Um, we, I think ultimately we had one nurse practitioner and I think three docs for the most time that we were there. And then the bottom fell out. Harvard Pilgrim went bankrupt, and they were our largest payer. And um. so we, the state uh, put them in receivership, so we still had to see the patients, but we weren't getting paid. Mm. That's a little tough when you have to pay rent and salaries oh, yeah. and malpractice and all those things. So it, it started a downward spiral that we really didn't recover from. So ultimately, mm. the practice got sold to the hospital. I moved to a different practice, which was, again, another multi-specialty hospital-based practice, and um, spent the next five years there. I will say it was not the most well-run practice I've ever been in. Um, there was a lot of friction. I was the sixth of seven doctors to leave. The seventh left shortly after I did. Wow. And at one point I just decided, you know what, i got to do something different. And so I looked around and thought about it and ended up back in solo practice here in Walpole, and I've been here ever since, happy as a clam. So how how big of a community is Walpole? Walpole's about 18,000 people. Um, we're halfway between Boston and Providence. We have commuter rail, so it's easy for people to get into and out of the city. And we are um, right on 95 and close to 495 and 128. So there's a lot of industry around us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that kind of really kind of sets the stage and mm-hmm. um, for things. Yeah. Um, but it's yeah, it's it, it's really interesting, you know, trying trying to see how people kind of weave all through that. I, when we, when we, I know you heard it uh, already, uh, but uh, you know, we t- talked to Conrad about you know kind of the, some mm-hmm. of the business aspects of the practice and things. Were you really kind of into that in the practices you you were at, or or did you were not kind of that interested in that type of thing? The the first time I went out on my own, I was totally lost. Um, I was not very much involved in the business side of it. My husband runs a small business, so he did most of the business parts. I just dealt with the clinical side of it. And um, I think that was part of why it really didn't fly as well as it could have. This time around, I do all of my own business pieces. Um, I pay my bills. I look at all my EOBs. I look at all my contracts. And uh, it just really, I have a much better sense of what's going on. How did I learn that? Basically just by doing it. And I'm still learning. You learn um, all kinds of different things about hiring and firing employees, 
benefits that you need to deal with, and you just sort of keep learning, keep doing it. Yeah, I mean, I just because uh, um, I, I, for me personally, I, mm-hmm. I, I try to stay a little bit on the periphery of that, and, and maybe mm-hmm. I shouldn't, um, but it's. Uh, um, I guess it is really learning by doing and kind of just jumping in there and, you know, definitely, you know, everybody makes mistakes and you learn from the mistakes and mm-hmm. um, and you kind of go on from that. And uh, um, it's interesting kind of, you know, how you just kind of just dove in and do it and, and said this is, this is you know, what I really want to do. I feel passionate about, uh, about you know, just, just seeing the patients and this type of practice. Uh, it, it's very interesting. One of the pieces, too, that's important is the fact that I've taken care of the same people for a long time. So I had more of a lifeline when I went from that employed practice back into solo practice because I knew my patients were going to come with me. So it wasn't like going into a community where you'd never been before, starting from zero. I knew I had a solid base of patients that were going to stay with me. They're they're actually funny. One of my patients, when I did did this, said to me, "Okay, you've moved five times. Are you finally going to stay? Because I'm tired of moving." And I looked at her and I said, "Yeah, I think I'll stay here." So, but one of the other pieces, though, that's been really important in terms of the success of the practice is being part of a larger group. Um, I am independent. I own the practice. But I belong to a uh, an IPA that is right now the second largest IPA in Massachusetts. And so our contracts are um, done by the IPA. And that, you know, that takes me out of that realm of it, too, where I know some people don't have that opportunity. They're actually out there negotiating their own contracts. Mm, okay. Well, that, that, that's good to know. Mm-hmm. Um well, why don't we just kind of dive into to your essay here. This is uh, from, uh, and I'll, I'll read a little bit here for the audience mm-hmm. as well. This is from uh, Wednesday, May 23rd. The title is uh, The Joys and Advantages of Solo Practice, and I'll read the first couple paragraphs here. Uh, it goes like this. One weekday afternoon uh, when I was sitting uh, on a bleacher watching my daughter play softball, another parent asked me why I wasn't at my office seeing patients. My answer She's uh, only going to grow up once. I attended every one of my daughter's high school softball games, but I also made plenty of time for patients. Many physicians struggle with the work-life balance, so being your own boss boss, uh, definitely has distinct advantages. I own my own small practice in suburban Boston, and I love being a solo doc again. Um, And you kind of go through some of these things in your uh, essay here um, Mm -hmm. as well. Um, and it's uh, when when people ask you about solo practice, or when people you know are kind of especially you know especially maybe residents or medical students and saying you know, Doctor Canoble, I'm really kind of hesitant about going out there and doing it myself. What kind of things do do you tell people about solo practice? I think I think the number one thing is the relationships that you build with your patients. That you're one on one. When I first started. I was by myself. I didn't hire my first nurse practitioner until I was elected to the board, and that became a necessity. But when you're in practice by yourself, you know everybody. You know what's going on. Every every complaint comes to you. Every call comes to you. Every visit comes to you. People would say, well, and for a while in the first go-round, I was actually on call every night. I had one doctor who would cover when I was away, um, and this was way back in the early 90s. And people were like, how could you do that? And the answer is simple. They're my patients. I know them. They know me. 
they know if they're going to call me at night, it better be good because I'm going to see them the next day. And so I think the patients really appreciate the fact that you are there for them and you are taking care of them in that very special way. And so it makes it a little bit easier than if you're on call for other groups where you know people don't know who you are. They're just calling. They'll call you for all kinds of crazy things. Um, my patients are really good about calling me when they need to be. Um, I think this time around the nice part is that we do a semi-open schedule, and so the patients know that if they call us on Monday morning, we'll see them on Monday, and if they call us on Friday, we'll see them on Friday. So characteristically in the call group that I'm in right now, very uh, few of my patients call on nights and weekends because we're seeing them. They know we're seeing them. So that's that's been helpful. The ability to set your own schedule to do the things that you think are important without having to ask somebody else's permission. If I look at the schedule and we find that it's not working right, um, you know, we're not staying on time, we're, we're always running three hours over along those lines, I can fix it. I can say, look, let's make this change. I don't have to go through channels. I make the change and we see how it works. And so that, that type of independence for me is really important. Uh, I know exactly what you mean. I mean, because you know, I'm in a group with uh, with four other family docs, mm-hmm. um, and uh, yeah, I mean, you know, when I was working last night and I uh, was on call last night, and you get these phone calls, and um, you know, and, and you know, I'm familiar with, with some of the patients um, if they're not my own, on my own personal panel, um, but yeah, it is a little bit different when when you're covering for for other people and. Uh, um, I would imagine, you know, very, very different if you're coming for a whole different physician in a whole different location with a whole different panel of patients. But um, I see what you're saying about, you know, that, that you're the one that knows the patients. They know you. Um, but let me ask you this. So, so you know, when you get a new patient or when, when you first start seeing a patient, do, do you set some of those expectations, you know, as far as, you know, this is when you should call or this is, you know, um, you know when you should contact me or, or that type of thing? We really don't. We leave, it, we leave it up to the patients themselves. And, again, you know, we, one, of the, one of the values of doing this is that you can set your own schedule. I don't have somebody telling me how many patients an hour I need to see so I can set my visit times to what I need to take care of the patients in the way that I want to do it. And so we talk a lot. I mean, I'm not obviously on the board. We do a lot of traveling, so I'm not in the office like this week and next week. We'll be gone for most of the days. But I talk to my patients about it. They know what I'm doing. They know I'm traveling. They know why I'm traveling. They know the importance that I put on trying to make a difference in medicine in general. And so they get excited about it. You know, it, it's part of them, too. It, um, it's, it's, that's where the family comes in, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, that, 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 totally, uh, that totally makes sense. Um, um, so are, do you see hospital patients these days or, or no? We don't, I don't see hospital patients. Um, we, there were two of us in the call group who were uh, private, actually solo docs, both of us, both solo family docs. And then the rest of the call group are employed physicians in um, the hospital and health center. They were not seeing their own inpatients. They were using the hospital service. And Joe and I were seeing our own patients. It just got to be too confusing because on weekends the hospitalists would cover. They'd forget to call us on Monday morning. 
Um, and so it, it just became, became too confusing. So both of us ultimately stopped doing inpatient work. Most of my, I don't have a very large inpatient practice anyway, so I would not have patients in the hospital all the time. It would be an unusual event for me to have a hospitalized patient, which would throw the schedule into a lot of um, problems when it happens. Sure. Mm-hmm. I miss mm-hmm. it, for sure. Um, oh, yeah. I miss mm-hmm. being there with my patients when they're in there. Um, but we have a good group of hospitalists that communicate well with us, so um, it's it's worked out okay. So how do you... Um, um, you've mentioned um, things like your patients are able to, to, to call in and come in the same day or the next day, and if they do call, it is the expectation of coming in the next day. Um, it, is that something that's set up with, with patients as far as, you know, w- when you call me, you should come in or, or you know, I, you know, you, you can, you do have open slots in your schedule. Um, um, I'm trying to think of what I'm trying to ask. Uh, how have you kind of, you know, developed your office practice through the years as far as, you know, how do you figure out what's working, what's not working, or what you need to change? Mm-hmm. Well, the first, the first part comes to the schedule because when I was by myself, I had to sit there and think, all right, I am the only doctor here in the office. How am I going to figure out how many patients are going to want to come in if they're sick? There's nobody else. There's no coverage to send them to down the hallway. So how do I do that? So what I ended up doing was setting up what I call a semi-open schedule. We book most of our appointments in the mornings. We book our physicals, and we'll save a few acute slots we book some early afternoon appointments, and then basically from about quarter of two on, it's all open. And so we just fill slots. So if you call us on Monday morning, we'll put you in in those slots. And on days when it's busy, it can be really busy. On days when it's not so busy, when there's not so many sick patients, then we use that time to do charting and other catch-up work. So that that's actually worked very, very well. I will tell you that um, we run on time. We don't double book, and we pride ourselves on running on time. And our patients know we run on time. And, and again, th- they sort of get this picture because they're coming in, they're seeing us. They know everybody. My My office is about 1,500 square foot. I have a front desk person. I have a medical assistant. I have a nurse practitioner and myself. And about wow. a month ago, I hired an office manager. Hmm. Um, she's going to get us to meaningful use in patient-centered medical home. That's her job. Um, yeah. So it's tiny. So you can't – we have three exam rooms that we work out of. And so even if I'm not seeing the patient, if my nurse practitioner is seeing the patient, they're walking right by my door, and they have no problem stopping to say, hi, how's it going? And so it's a very intimate relationship, and so they know. They know mm-hmm. when you know they they come in what they're going to expect what we're going to see, and we repeat that pattern over and over again. So that's that. This is the product that they expect from us. Well, I have to tell you that uh, you know on your essay here, I mean there have mm-hmm. been you know a lot of comments, a lot of positive comments, a lot of positive feedback that mm-hmm. you've received not only from the essay but but being a, a solo family dog. And I encourage people to go and check that out at the AEFP Leader Voices. Uh, blog. Uh, you can go to AFP.org and uh, check those out. Um, um, what's your reaction to to you know a, a lot of these you know positive comments on your essay? It seems like a lot of support out there. I was excited by it. Um, I 
I think far too often we hear that um, solo and small practices are, are dinosaurs. They're a dying breed. And I think that the people who are involved in it are very passionate about what they do. And that's what you saw, I think, in the essays. Um, you know, just people who were setting out for the first time, uh, getting ready to take that leap. And, you know, part of the part of the blog was about student interest as well. And, you know, one of the hard parts for us, if I just told you how big my office was, to bring a student in here or a resident here in here to do a preceptorship really isn't going to fly uh, for a lot of different reasons. And so I think a lot of times the students and residents don't get to see this type of practice. Um, I was at multi-state, and California and Kansas presented on their future faces of family medicine and how... They were reacting or they were acting with some of the, interacting with some of the students. And I thought that was a great, great presentation. It gave me a lot of ideas. I then went to Penn State where two of the medical students from Pennsylvania presented a beautiful um, program on what they were looking for, which is social mentoring. Not Mm. so much clinical mentoring, but looking at the social side of medicine. And that kind of coalesced in my head to this idea that, all right, there are lots of us out there who would love to preceptor but really can't on the clinical side, but we could do social precepting. I've had a couple medical students come out to my office just to see what solo practice was like. It's like, you know, okay, if we have that opportunity to bring people out for fun, take people out to dinner, show them that we actually have lives, we have good lives, we have fun lives, we do things outside of medicine, maybe bring them to our state annual meetings. And so that's one of the things that I'm I'm looking forward to doing, um, at least in our state, thanks to those other states. Um, And so, but the other piece to that is, how many times do people change jobs? I mean, I don't know too many people who finish their residency, go into one position, and stay there for the rest of their lives. So I could see how residents might be a little bit nervous about coming out into solo practice. They don't have a lot of experience in management, they're not sure what's going to happen. But if they spend some time in the community and they see solo dogs out there, that might get them thinking that, hey, I could do this. This is not as hard as it looks. And so I want to make sure that solo practice, small practices survive so that people can choose that option if they make changes later on in life. That's great. Yeah, I mean, I I never really thought of a social preceptor. Mm-hmm. That is, uh, I'll have to look up with some stuff on that because uh, I I like that idea, and uh, um, I think I think to some extent that's what I'm doing a little bit, and exactly. uh, uh, um, just kind of just you know showcasing things and not really like you said you know being clinical but kind of yeah. seeing you know the the uh, you know, the range of what uh, what a uh, a family physician can do. Um, uh, my guest on the line here is uh, Dr. Laura Knoble, and uh, she's a, a solo practice champion. And uh, um, kind of in our remaining uh, minutes here, I did want to talk a little bit about um, advocacy, um, and uh, which we've talked about on our, our previous shows here. And uh, you know, advocacy is, is, is such a, an important piece for for a specialty for family medicine for family docs. And and when you talk to AEFP members, when you talk to family docs about you know, advocacy and the importance to kind of stand up for our specialty and, and to, you know, let everybody know whether it's our, 
um, uh, communities or legislators the importance of family medicine? What, what do you tell docs out there who, you know, sometimes are you know frustrated or frustrated a lot, or you know, they say, Laura, you know, it's tough for me to kind of do some of this advocacy stuff. I bring it back sometimes to my own experience, and it's actually why I sit on the board and why I got involved. The day-to-day pieces outside of dealing with the patients drive me crazy. Um, I live in Massachusetts, which is a very um, highly regulated state. We're actually going up to the state house tomorrow to deal with some financial uh, regu- financial reform bills that are being put forward. And so for me... The option was to sit at home and stew and moan and complain or to go out and make a difference. And so I approach others in that same fashion and try to encourage them to become active. It's like if you don't like something, come talk to us about it. Come do something with us. You know, Come along with me to the State House. See what it's like because anybody can go talk at the State House. You don't have to be in leadership. You don't have to be in the academy. Um, I think... I honestly think the AFP is wonderful for this in terms of allowing our members to bring resolutions to the Congress of Delegates. If there's something that you need us to do for you, write it up, bring it along, call us, talk to us. We're there for you, and we'll go fight it. And come learn how to do it on your own, because I think the only way we're really going to survive is if more and more of our members are comfortable going out, talking to their legislators, Talking to their patients, we need to really mobilize our patient base in a lot of this. Um, A lot of what's happening impacts them directly. Get them to be vocal with your state legislators about what's going on. Write write articles for your newspaper. You know, do newspaper interviews. Start small, but get involved because it's really important. And again, we get to do it on the national level, which is a blast. But anybody can do it on the state or national level. Oh uh, yeah, those are great points, and it's you know it's it, it's it's challenging for me sometimes to to um, try to educate my patients on some of this um, legislative stuff. Sometimes complicated legislative stuff in addition to their clinical appointment, and uh, mm-hmm. um, because yeah, I really think the communities need to know what's going on, you know, at the local level, at the state level, at the national level. Um, it, do you find that um how do you find that when you talk to patients about that stuff is it is it is it is it difficult for them to try to understand is it difficult for you to try to frame what the what the issue is for family medicine to patients It can be but I think overall one of the things that we are, we are really good at as family docs is bringing the conversation down to the level that our patients can understand that that's how we interact with them every day. We don't use huge medical terms. We we don't talk in jargon. We talk to our patients as people. And so I think that we have the ability to take those really complicated issues and bring them down to the patient level that they can understand and they can say, oh, well, I never thought of it that way or, oh, that makes a lot more sense now. So I think by being family doctors, we really have that ability to to get it to their level and to bring it out there. And they enjoy it. I mean, I have to tell you, my patients love talking uh, politics and other things, sometimes to the point where those are the days I don't quite run on time. Uh, (laughs) But, but, you know, Uh, we're going to fix the problems of the world before we're done. Wow. 
Well, so were you always kind of a, a an advocate or activist or growing up, or was it something that, that you found, uh, you know, because I, I know that you're you're involved with the Massachusetts Medical Society as well. Mm-hmm. Is that something that you've always had growing up, or was it like something that you've, those skills that you found, uh, you know, a little later? I was probably one of the most shy, shyest, quietest kids you could ever imagine. I think, you know, if my parents back then when I was growing up knew what I was going to do now, they would have just stood there laughing and saying, there is no way that she is going to be able to do this. But I think when you're passionate about something, when it's really important to you, you develop those skills that are going to get you to the point where you want to be. And, you know, for me, it's it's hard. I am not the most outgoing of people. It takes a lot of work to get out there from that natural shyness. But, you know, the rewards are so much worth it. I tell people also, when you travel with the Academy, you travel with family. These are people I've known for years and years and years, and they make it easy to be confident and comfortable with them. So it just it's, this one came as a learned experience. Um, uh, that's, I mean, I, I definitely, uh, uh, you know, resonate, you know, those, a lot of those comments, we have a lot more in common than, <laughs> than I thought we did because, you know, what, you know, back in, you know, grade school and high school and even the first part of college, you know, I was, I was, you know, uh, also very shy and, and, yeah. you know, didn't want to get up and, you know, stand up and, and talk to anybody or give a speech or give a book report or anything uh, like this. And, uh, and, and you're right. I mean, it, it is, it is skills. It is skills that can be learned. It's not like you have it or you don't have it and um and uh you know i i i tell everybody you know that the academy really helped me develop uh a lot of the the skills as far as presentation and, and putting thoughts together and and being an advocate and um writing resolutions um you, you just have to want to do it and, and put the time in for it and 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 all that'll come but all my friends now they're like mike you know i we can't ever you know imagine you being you know off in the corner and being a shy person and, and not talking to anybody, but that that's that's what I was, you know, back then. And um, it, it's interesting, um, you know, as things evolve and and and. Um, but but just like you said, I mean, if you're passionate about something, whatever the issue is, um, you will do what it takes to express yourself or or or, or share people what your patient stories are, what your community stories are. Um, and that is what is part of, of being an advocate for our patients. So I, I can't agree more with you. Mm-hmm. So, a- Absolutely. And, you know, I, I will say the Academy has given us a wonderful education. Um, for any of those out there who are listening who are at all interested, you know, sign up to be on a commission. Volunteer to be on a commission. Think about running for the board. It is so much fun. It's a lot of work, but it is fun. And the education we get is astonishing. Mm. So. That, that, that's one of my uh, very intimidating things as far as, oh, yeah, Mike, we see you on the board someday. I'm like, uh, I, I, don't, I don't see that. <laughs> I, don't know. I, don't, I don't know about any of that. Um, but, you well, come know, on, just, you've got 7,000 followers. <laughs> what, what's, what's, what's so hard about being on the board? I, I don't know. I don't know. It's, it seems like a lot of pressure. <laughs> Not at all. Not at all. It's a blast. It's a blast. It, it, it looks like it's a it's a blast, and, and one of the, the great things about the academy is you know you know whatever you know, whatever level that you're at, I mean there there are definitely you know these safe harbors that are out there. You know if you're a student or resident, you go to a national conference. 
if you're out there past residency or anywhere, you know, you can search NCSC uh, to get you ready to go, you know, to the to the you know the, the big house or the Congress of Delegates. Uh, mm-hmm. that, that's one of the things I love about the academy, and, and, not, and there's also the state chapter level too. There are these opportunities out there um, at the local, state, and national level to develop these skills and to write resolutions and to talk to legislators. Um, it's just it's just been great, you know, trying to take advantage of these um, academy opportunities. Uh, and, and to learn more, and, and I've learned, you know, so much, and I met a lot of people, you know, through this experience. It's been incredible for me. Yeah, you just have to be strong enough to take that first step and to get involved. Because once you get involved, forget it, you're hooked. <laughs> and I, I'll tell you, the people in Massachusetts know this. My chapter exec, if she's listening tonight, is probably sitting there laughing because I will get somebody on the board or I'll talk to somebody in a meeting. I'm like, come on, you can do this, you can do this. And it's like I will start in on them until they agree that, all right, I'll go do this. But, you know, people say that you're only as strong as the people that you bring with you. And so, you know, it's, it's, you just take that passion and you share it. My uh, guest on the line is Dr. Laura Knoble, and uh, um, and uh, in our closing moments here, I do want to talk a little bit um, more about um, social media, and because uh, this is a podcast, and um, would you share me with me a little bit about you know um, you know how how somebody you know pounded your head into the wall and said, uh, "Why don't you just try this a little bit, Laura?" <laughs> it- it was it was pretty much that um I tend to be a very private person so this idea of having myself sort of out there where I didn't have control was was rather a frightening thought um but you know having started it having done Facebook first which was a little bit more my style Twitter yes. I still I still have a little hard time following it with all it, the It's very confusing. It gets very confusing. Um but again one of my one of my pushes always is to improve communications with the members and this is one of the ways that we can do it i mean we hear comments all the time from people who are writing on the um listservs and things like that that the board is out of touch they don't know what's going on and this is a way that we can say okay this is who we are you know this is what we do we're real people just like you are we have the real problems that everybody else does and we truly understand what's going on out there um, so I think that's good. The Leader of Voices blog I thought was a great idea. And for you to do this show, this is wonderful to give us this opportunity to really talk to people, get them to understand we're real, we're we're normal people. We're not, you know, we're not all academics in the ivory tower who absolutely know nothing about what's going on in life. Um, I'm going to put a plug-in, and Conrad and Reed will probably kill me for doing this, but I'm going to put a plug-in again for the candidate's question and answer um, part of the Academy website. It is our members' opportunity to ask all of the candidates that are running for the board, speaker, vice speaker, and president-elect, questions that are burning a hole in your mind. What is it you want to know from us? And usually it's not a very well um, used site, I would love to see questions. Give me 10 questions this year. I think there were two last year. Give me 10, I'll be happy. <laughs> yeah. um, and, and I know on your on your Twitter and on your Facebook mm-hmm. uh, that you share, you know, every time there's a new question on there, trying mm-hmm. to uh, 
encourage uh, engagement, and I think it's very admirable to 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 try to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I I really appreciate the board, um, you know, um, uh, allowing um, you guys to to come on the show and uh, and, and to uh, you know kind of have this try out this vehicle as far as trying to increase communication. But when in those kind of board meetings, what uh, you know, what what uh, what is discussed about you know the the potential you know for communication for things like social media? Why why do you think that uh, you know that the board and the academy has has found value in in this type of medium? I I think you've seen that in all of the uh, new products that are out there um, that the academy understands that. Social media is where it's at. It's where we're going to get our new students. It's where we're going to get our residents. It's where we're going to get our young physicians connected in. Um, at the last board meeting, we actually approved uh, funding to um, allow some mobilization of parts of the website so that people will be able to access things on their mobile devices much better than they can right now. And so clearly that's the area um, that everybody's going into, you know, it just it's 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 scary sometimes how much is out there, but it's also wonderful how people can connect. And you know, I've watched my kids growing up um, first with email and now with Facebook and Twitter. They've stayed connected with their high school friends for years because they're always there. We didn't have that opportunity. If you know, if we wanted to connect with a high school friend, we had to write a letter. Now, um, on Facebook, I actually found one of my fellow residents out in um, Washington uh, uh, who, you know, we haven't talked to each other for 21 years. And all of a sudden, we're back together again. So it really has opened up those avenues, and I think we're going to keep going forward with it. So. Yeah, I mean, and the other strength that I see is, is during meetings themselves, uh, mm-hmm. whether it's uh, uh, whether it's Congress or um, uh, National Conference or NCSC or even the Family Medicine Congressional Conference. Mm-hmm. Um, um, I hear from people all the time saying, "Oh, I'm glad that we're getting updates from DC or wherever," uh, and, and they take part in the meeting. You know, mm-hmm. during their office hours, or you know, during lunch, or something like that, and they feel engaged, they feel connected to the meeting, and, and I think that's another power of, of of social media is is to have people feel like that they're there, a part of the meeting, um, and hopefully, when the next year comes or when the next meeting comes, they're able to block out the time, you know, from their professional situation or practice or wherever it is, um, and, and uh, uh, I think you know, um, you know, the board saw this at NCSC as far mm-hmm. as oh, you know, what can we really communicate out of here and have people um, engage with us in real time, and and that's a very powerful experience as well. Absolutely. Um, Last year, we um, streamed the Congress of Delegates. Yes, Which I believe we're going to do again. And so it it, it does bring that opportunity for people who may not have the time commitment or really know what it is that the Congress of Delegates does to sort of take some time and say, hey, I can go look at this online and I can see what they're doing. And that may pull another person in to say, wow, we really do have a voice here. We really can be heard. And so I think... Uh, and I did have some friends and colleagues, uh, even academy members, that said, "Oh, Mike, you know, I didn't know that that's what the Congress of Delegates was about, mm-hmm. policy making and that type of mm-hmm. thing. Oh, maybe I may go in to the uh, Scientific Assembly early and, and check out what that is." So, so I think, yeah, I think that 
that helps dispel some of the mysteries of what the Congress of Delegates is about. And I think it, it was a great move to to have that going on live for people to look mm-hmm. at in real time, uh, especially the speeches that go on during that uh, during those uh, sessions. It's just those are you know, the very most inspirational speeches of the year. You know, whoever it is, whether it's an officer or a candidate, um, I I just love watching those, and that helps energize me and recharge me uh, when I'm in the office, uh, very frustrated about whatever it is. <laughs> I I would agree, and I think you know we. We have that opportunity to bring more people in that way to feel more connected. Look at what our membership has done. We've gone up over 100,000 members. That, to me, I think the social media is part of that. It's getting out to the people um, who know. I think you're a huge part of this. Um, you're, you're, you're reaching audiences that you know we might not normally be involved with, and you know you you may be pulling these people in to say, hey. I think I'll go to medical school. I think I'll go into family medicine because I've been hearing all this good stuff and seeing all this good stuff from Mike out there. This is something I want to try. <laughs> well, well, thank you for saying that. I just, I just, I just want to, you know, just like you said, you find you you feel passionate about something, and I'm passionate about about the family medicine and using this communication medium to 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 talk to whomever will listen. And uh, mm-hmm. um, and and I think you're right. I mean, we have found a uh, an audience out there, and as we empower other family docs. Uh, to do the same thing, they're going to find different audiences as well, uh, and to continue to to grow our story. Um, I, I, it's just it's just a fascinating and and it's a very exciting time uh, for our specialty. I would agree. I would agree. I think you know people all weekend were asking me what um, what the Supreme Court is going to do. You know, what do you think the Supreme Court is going to do? And I have no clue, but I do know that no matter what they do particularly if they vote the ACA down, that as family docs, our academy is going to have to be there fighting for us and our patients. And so the more power we have, the more voice we have, the more social media we have, the better chance we have of coming up with a solution that's going to work for our country. Um Dr. Laura Canova, thank you so much for for being on the show. I'll, I'll let you have some uh, uh, um, closing comments or for whatever you like. Uh, um, but I did want to thank you for coming on the show. I did want to uh, point out uh, to people out there listening uh, to go and read her essay on the AEFP Reader uh, Leader Voices blog at aefp.org. Uh, go to uh, Wednesday, May twenty third, twenty twelve. It's entitled The Joys and Advantages of Solo Practice. And not only read the essay, but also read the comments underneath. Um, and I think it's maybe about 10 or a dozen comments. Um, and, and you're going to really kind of see, you know, that, that the effect that, that, that her story has on the people that commented. It's a, it's a fascinating um, story. And, and I want to thank you for coming on. And, and, but, but before I let you go here uh, this evening, Laura, do you have any closing comments uh, for us, whether it be of solo practice or family medicine? or advocacy or anything else this evening? Well, first off, I just want to say thanks, Mike, for having me on because this has been really fun. And, um, you know, for those of you out there who might be thinking about solo practice or who are in solo practice and struggling, keep up the good work and, you know, let us know what's going on so we can make a difference and help you out there. And um, I guess my last piece would be that the family medicine revolution is alive and well and growing, and we got to keep <laughs> it that way. 
Very good. So, very good. Um, I think I will. Uh, I will see you at. Uh, I'll definitely be at national conference, so I know I'll, I'll see you uh, next month, and, and we'll be able to to chat more uh, at that point. But uh, but thanks again, Laura, for coming on the show. This has been a, such a treat for me. Uh, it, it's been it's always fun uh, meeting people. Uh, kind of on the radio or on the <laughs> internet, and, and uh, um, I feel like I know you already, and, and we can continue the conversation when, when we're in person. Uh, uh, so, but thank you so much for the time. Um, have fun in New Jersey this week. I was I was there at that meeting uh, last year, and uh, they put on a good show, and they have a lot of great people out there, a lot of great uh, docs out there. The staff is is uh, is excellent, and uh, I wish I could go again this year, but I, yep. I'm not able to. But uh, I'm but looking forward to it. So great. All right. Well, thank you so much for the time, and, and we'll talk next month. So uh, uh, good night. Uh, thank you so much. All right. Bye now. All right. All right, kids. So uh, that's our show here uh, for this evening. Uh, I do want to thank uh, my guest, uh, Dr. Lorik Noble. And, uh, um, yeah, what a great uh, what a great chat, you know. Just uh, <laughs> I, I admit I, I felt a little bit anxious going in because, you know, I'd never really talked with her before. and uh, But uh, but it was fun. You just, you just, you just got get a couple of family docs together. You know, and you can just chat forever. <laughs> and I, I always love uh, talking with people who are, you know, passionate about what they're talking about. You know, and and you know, I'm in a group practice. She, she's in a solo practice, and uh, you know, there there are some similarities, but there are a lot of differences as well. And uh, um, yeah, and what also what brings us together is our passion for family medicine, um, and also her new passion for social media. So it's a uh, it's uh, it's great to talk with her um, again. I, I do want to thank before we close up the show here this evening. I do want to thank the the Academy and the AAFP Board of Directors for, for taking a chance on this show again uh, to, to have, uh, you know, board members come on and talk about whatever they want to talk about. And, uh, you know, I, again, you know, it's an open invitation, you know, to, to you know, you know anybody on the board or anybody, you know, anybody else who, who wants to come in and share your story here on the Family Medicine Rocks uh, podcast. You know, when I started this show, all I wanted to do was, is, is to share you know, you know why family medicine rocks. You know, and and uh, as you've seen from these, you know, these past uh, three shows, um, you know, episodes 261, two and three, uh, you'll see, you know, three family docs who, you know, who have distinctly different stories, um, but they're board members, and just like she said, they, you know, they're not in some kind of ivory tower somewhere. Uh, they're real people um, who, uh, you know, who are passionate ab- about. Not only family medicine, but you know, um, healthcare policy, taking care of patients, taking care of communities, um, and, and and making a difference. You know, making a difference. You know, for for the American public. And uh, you know, thanks again to the board for for uh, you know, for taking a chance on this show. Hopefully, you know, as I talk to more people and and you all get 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 more of your board members here on the show and, and show you out there <laughs> in internet land. That they're just real people. You know what I'm saying, kids? <laughs> um, so that ends the show here for this evening. Hey, uh, check me out here um, in a couple of days on uh, Thursday, June 14, episode 264. I haven't decided the time yet. I have to look at my schedule to try to figure that out when the live time is. But you can also listen on the DL on the download. Uh, the main two topics I'm going to be talking about are two articles from the past week. One is from the Huffington Post, which is getting a lot of uh, links and retweets out there. Um, it's called Time for Total Medicine. Get family medicine out of the shadows. People love this. I have some opinions about this, uh, so I'll share them on episode 264. Also, a, an article from HITConsultant.net. Uh, the title is, Are We on the Verge of a Primary Care Renaissance? 
so I'll be talking about that. And also, I'll be, also have some reflections on these past three shows here. Um, and uh, that's all I have for you here uh, this evening. Thank you so much for uh, listening live. I see you out there, kids, um, on my live listens out there. I know there's a bunch of people listening out there, so thank you so much for that. Hey, uh, follow me on Twitter, Dr. Mike Savilla, and uh, 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 like my Facebook page. <laughs> that's uh, facebook.com slash fam. Med Rocks, and also check out my digital library of stuff at uh, familymedicinerocks.com. That's all I have for you here this evening. Thank you so much for listening live, and also everybody who are listening on the archives later. My name is Mike Savella, and uh, hey, this is these past three shows, I'm very happy with uh, how they turned out. Uh, thank you so much for my guests. Thank you so much, all of you, for listening as well. Uh, good night from Northeastern Ohio. We'll see you all very soon. Have a good night, everybody.